Greetings, everyone. This is a Sound Health radio show with Richard Talk to Me Guy. And as we know, Sherry Edwards is off working on the SoundHealthPortal.com. It's really, I can't say how great it is to have the Sound Health Portal now instead of lugging around a laptop. It is really great. To learn more about the Sound Health Portal, I would suggest going to SoundHealthPortal.com, scrolling right to the bottom, and looking at the videos and watching a live demo that Sherry's recorded where she's done a workup with somebody online in real time. And you'll get to see what the sound what the sound health well what the research at Sound Health Options is, founded by Sherry Edwards, is you do a thirty to forty second recording. In this case with a portal they do two to compare them. Thirty to second forty thirty to forty second recording. And then that vocal print will be run through the software and broken down. And you'll have an analysis on the other side for some of the campaigns, which I'll get back to in a moment, such as PTSD or neuroplasticity or fibromyalgia. And what it does is it breaks that down and it compares the imbalances in your vocal print, which you'll have to watch. It would be best to watch Sherry do a demo because she explains that more thoroughly. And also the advantage of seeing the demo, a video demo that she's done online, is that you'll be able to see the portal in action, meaning how it takes the information of a voice, breaks it down, and turns it then because of Sherry's always ongoingly developing pie charts or some kind of amazing thing where the most current one that I like very much is one that it's a circle, so it's a whole pie, yeah, but it breaks it down into here's the thing you want to look at now. It gives you everything, all the other things to, things that might be imbalanced, but the one thing you want to focus on that might be, it could be a methylation issue. It could be a too much of or not enough of. It's, it's really, the Sound Health Portal is really great. So watch a video demo. It's really informative. Then, when you want to see it in action, go back to soundhealthportal.com, scroll down just a bit, and look at the current campaigns. And campaigns are those that are free options that you can do a trial run of to see the kind of information that you can get. And some of them currently are neuroplasticity, fibromyalgia. I think PTSD is still there. I always enjoy having neuroplasticity run because I like to keep my brain in action. And so the system will walk you through signing up for free. That's just so they can email you the report. Then it'll guide you to doing two 30 to 40 second recordings directly from your computer. And after you submit it, within a couple of hours to maybe 10, I think is the most I've ever waited, you'll get a report with enough information that you're going to want to sit down with a cup of tea and review it and go, wow. Then go watch a demo. There could be a demo on the option that you chose, such as neuroplasticity. And... If you have a practitioner who's inclined, you could take it to that practitioner and talk about them like, look at this. Is that interesting? Can we do something to help that? Either make it more innervated or less innervated or how do I get that out of my system? Or It's really it's a great resource. So that's soundhealthportal.com. To hear and share replays of this show and with Dr. Greenblatt, that we were just talking backstage. I think I started interviewing him in 2017. A really positive rabble rouser. 
in a in the best possible way of really getting information out there, all sorts of great information. And today we're going to be talking about his newest book, Finally Focused, regarding ADHD. And you'll be able to find this show in about 15 to 20 minutes afterwards by going to either soundhealthoptions.com and click on the radio tab and then click on Sound Health Radio. And at the top of that list will be the flyer for today's show and a link back to the show, the show notes, and or there's also the link at the very top, links at the very top for Stitcher or Pocket Cast, where you can click on, let's say you click on Stitcher, and it'll bring up a list of all the shows, and at the top, the the aggregators, which is Stitcher or Pocket Cast, or on iOS, it's Podcasts, and on Google, I think it's all just co- also called Podcasts, or actually it's called Google Podcasts, and you can go to any of those and search for either Talk To Me Guy, all one word, or Sound Health Radio, and you'll find our five or 600 hours of shows. And also now you can go to TalkToMeGuy.com. I finally have a website built, I'm thrilled to say. And if you go there, you'll be able to, it's a very mobile friendly, so if you want to listen to it on a phone or a portable device, you can. And with added show notes after the show, anything that we talk about, the doctor and I talk about, I will add notes there as well. And you can go there. And also, if you'd like, you'll see at the top of the episodes, today's show will be there in about 15 or 20 minutes. And if you have any comments or uh, suggestions for a guest, you can always go there and just tap on the microphone at the lower right on your mobile device or on your computer. And you can leave me a message with suggestions. With that, A pioneer in the field of integrative medicine, James N. Greenblatt, M.D., has treated patients since 1988. After receiving his medical degree and completing his psychiatry residency at George Washington University, Dr. Greenblatt completed a fellowship in child and adolescent psychiatry at Johns Hopkins Medical School. He currently serves as the chief medical officer at Walden Behavioral Care in Waltham, Massachusetts, and serves as as assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at Tufts University School of Medicine and Dartmouth College Geisel School of Medicine. Dr. Greenblatt has lectured internationally on the scientific evidence for nutritional interventions in psychiatry and mental illness. He is the author of seven books, including Finally Focused, The Breakthrough Natural Treatment Plan for ADHD. He's the founder of Psychiatry Redefined, an educational platform dedicated to the transformation of psychiatry, which offers online CME-approved courses, webinars, and fellowships for professionals about functional and integrative medicine for mental illness. Dr. Greenblatt joins us to talk about Finally Focused, the Breakthrough Natural Treatment Plan for ADHD, how this plan can restore attention, minimize hyperactivity, and help eliminate drugs. Welcome, Dr. James. Thank you, happy to be back. I wanna open with a slightly unusual occasion, but I I wanna read this definition. ADHD is not a behavior problem or a discipline problem. ADHD is a medical disorder in which genetic, neurological, nutritional, and environmental factors imbalance the brain, causing imbalanced behavior. I want us to all have that in our brain pans as we have this conversation. 
causing imbalanced behavior. When did ADHD appear in the lexicon of psychiatric disorder diagnostics? When did it start appearing as a thing, I guess I'll call it? Well, we could probably go back 120 years. Uh, we had many descriptions of children with poor impulse control and hyperactivity. And, uh, you know, these names changed every 20 or 30 years. In the 30s, they were called brain-injured kids because they looked like they were kids following, you know, encephalitis from um, the pandemic. Mm. And then they had minimal brain damage. And then in the 60s, it was hyperactivity with and without, um, you know, attention problems. So it really probably in... 2013, where we've come up with a name, ADHD, and I think understand it as a psychiatric diagnosis. But we've been throwing around terms for over 120 years in an attempt to understand some of these kids with poor impulse control, hyperactivity, and the resulting behavior problems. Wow. And have you observed changes not that you've been around that long <laughs> i'm laughing with you i too have been around a long time changes in the sense of in your almost 30 years of of looking at this and trying to get people to lean toward nutrition i know you in your postgraduate work you were sort of thinking you were going to come out and give everybody kale and brown rice and they'd all be fine in your early days and you're still kind of doing that i think that's very exciting and yeah, and, but I think the important piece with with ADHD is, you know, I have not thrown away my prescription pad, right. and um, some kids do need medicine. But what is kind of tragically missed is some of the other environmental, nutritional, or medical uh, factors that could contribute to these symptoms. True that there are a higher number of males with ADHD. I think I've heard that stat thrown around. So. I thought I'd ask the... It's certainly, yes, a higher number diagnosed. And, you know, what is interesting, the, the, the females, the girls, aren't picked up as early because they're not necessarily as hyperactive and impulsive and don't have the same behavior problems, but oftentimes struggling with poor impulse control and inattention, they might not get picked up till adolescence or even missed. But, yes, there's a higher... Um, numbers of the diagnosis in males and females. Hmm. And we'll jump in and out of this. Um, I, I'm curious about the, since we seem to, do, do you think we are actually having more ADHD or we're actually having more diagnostic work acknowledging, acknowledging ADHD? Does that make sense? Well, can I... Yeah, I think I have to say both, because in some ways, uh, I think the, the the food we've been feeding our kids, the, you know, the screens and everything else is certainly not helping, so we are seeing more kids with ADHD, but I also see somewhat um, kind of overdiagnosis, anyone who struggles, you know, not getting the A or uh, not paying attention, people are jumping to a diagnosis and oftentimes, you know, medicating um, quickly. So I think it's a, a little of both and depending okay. on where you are at the time. And I can't help but I have to jump here. 
Do you think that it that part of it is that our environmental toxic load has has really just keeps cranking up every decade in terms of now we now we know that grains can be an issue per se let's say GMO grains can be an issue or glyphosate residue on everything on virtually everything it's in breast milk it's everywhere uh, residue can be an be an possible exacerbant or a neurological irritant in my view do you think that our our total toxic load is exacerbating this to a certain extent uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I don't, I'm not sure the traditional medical establishment would say that, but they provided research. So we know the kids closer to the farms with the pesticides, much higher incidence of ADHD. We know copper and lead in the water, much higher incidences of ADHD. And, you know, all the other environmental toxins um, affect nutrient status and increase ADHD. So it's quite clear that there is a correlation. Well, I'm old enough that, uh, well, I'm old enough, <laughs> that period, um, that as a kid, I grew up in the Monterey Peninsula in agricultural area. And when we would drive up to see my grandparents in the what is now called the Silicon Valley, just used to be called Menlo Park, um, it was fun to stick your head out of the car and be crop dusted by the crop dusters. Now, decades later, I realized that that was probably DDT. So we've always been aggressively, well, particularly growing up next to the Salinas Valley, one of the largest ag areas in the country. Um, Without Salinas Valley, there is no iceberg lettuce in your taco. Um, But I mean, so I've had it in my life always coming from that area. But I mean, it seems like it's even more so now in your research, are we actually using more toxins or we're just acknowledging that they, they are there now, do you think? I think that clearly, um, I got to say a little of both as well. I mean, I think we're doing the research and acknowledging they do affect the behavior. I mean, the Flint, Michigan crisis um, was only, mm. you know, a few years ago and uh, led um, and um, as many states started looking at lead and copper in the drinking water in elementary schools, um, it's uh, rampant. And so uh, I think it's a cumulative effect. And then the underlying dietary, um, you know, uh, kind of foods that many of the kids are eating, particularly in impoverished areas, are really not set up to help eliminate some of these toxins or support, um, you know, normal brain function. And then I guess, could you talk about the, what I, what I will call genetic proclivity toward ADHD? And is there, I, I have to ask at the same time, is there an actual biomarker of, if we look at genetics, this person will get ADHD or have or demonstrate ADHD? Or is it that they will have the proclivity toward no, I don't, I don't think we have any marker at all. Okay. Uh, I think the genetic, um, you know, reality is, is quite clear. Usually there's a family history, but n- not always. And, you know, someone who has the tendencies towards uh, ADHD, poor impulse control, hyperactivity, 
in certain areas, certain jobs, certain environments, those symptoms are quite minimal. And other environments, like school, they'll be exacerbated and someone might struggle. So there's this kind of genetic um, environmental dance that goes on all the time to really um, produce how impaired someone might be due to the ADHD symptoms mm-hmm. or diagnosis. Yeah. And I will, I will toss in, I was going to say this for later, but I, I will toss in, in my life, I was a chef on and off for 20 years. And I will say that, that it's definitely a world, not filled because that would label too many people, but certainly there's a lot of people in the restaurant industry, particularly, particularly in the kitchen area who are on some sort of spectrum of ADD or ADHD. And they have, I can I kind of even think of watching Anthony Bourdain or some other chefs that I've watched where they've adapted, they've taken their proclivity, their lean toward having that and moved into a world like when you're the head chef of a kitchen, you're monitoring about a zillion things a night. So you're always occupied. You're not, you're never distracted because everything is, is happening. You're having to watch every plate that goes out. You're, if you're serving two to 500 people a night, you're watching a bazillion things. And not only are you watching, you're hearing, you're smelling, you're seeing, you're fully on alert in the sense of monitoring everything so that you see these people who are high functioning in the kitchen because they've taken their ADHD and turned it into an asset. They don't know it, but that's what they've done. And then when you get them in the world, they're sort of like, wow, this guy's kind of twitchy. And you just don't notice it because in the kitchen, that what I would call twitchiness, which is a harsh label. And I don't mean to be, but I've been with people that are like that or that are kind of twitchy in the world, but in the kitchen, it works perfectly. So I just think it's interesting how – go ahead. No, it's a great point, and, and I think one of the core messages in the book is helping find your child's strengths and passions and using the symptoms of ADHD for success rather than failure. So the ability to multitask and be creative and passionate and our strengths, and people can find, you know, that fit. And uh, I certainly heard it, not from within the kitchen, but from outside, that um, that's one area. And there were many others, but too often um, these kids are put in environments, um, be it school with 50 kids in a class or other environments where they're just kind of set up to fail rather than to exceed or excel. Well, I think also I've seen situations where, where I, I've had some friends who have a, a kid who's ADHD ish and i say that because they've adjusted his lifestyle so he eats you know they do they're following the protocol of your book they just don't know it yet and yet if he's someplace and somebody has the smell of like let's say dryer sheets on their clothes i can watch him get a little twitchy from that you know it's a it's i i put that in the total toxic load environment i consider dryer sheets to be kind of toxic anyway um, but it, but it can be any number of things that could just tip somebody over, it, like a neurological irritant. Does that seem correct to you? Absolutely, yeah. So I've observed that in this child, where it can be a sm- it, it, 
I think a lot of times people think it's a it's a confrontation or something like that, but it can be something where you can actually sort of begin to manifest that if they smell something that's they can have a reaction to it. It's not just I'm talking to you and you're not paying attention to me. It can be a smell. It can be any number of things. So I'm going to jump from that to I I don't want to go too far afield before we really talk about the book because I think the book is so it's so you in the best of ways, in the sense of really, hey, nutrition, let's try this. Wow, that's great. Um, and why in chapter one in Finally Focused, you talk about the miracle mineral magnesium. Why, why do you think magnesium is such a life changer in a positive sense? Well, I, th- I think, you know, we've been talking about the material in this book for 25 years, and then as the research part started coming out to support everything, we were trying to figure out how do we kind of frame it in, in a book, and we decided to do it as kind of the, the most important, and that's why we started with magnesium. And most of my work as, you know, what I call functional medicine uh, psychiatrist is looking at testing and finding out an individual uh, treatment plan. And, and we start off with magnesium because that is the one nutrient that I have found in 30-plus years to be deficient um, in practically every ADHD child and adult that I've seen. So I don't know if there's a genetic component, but certainly clinically uh, to be the most common nutrient deficiency. So that's why we start off with Chapter 1 talking about, um, you know, the miracle mineral magnesium as it's something that I think can be added for any child with ADHD with positive results in terms of sleep and uh, hyperactivity and uh, often anxiety. Does it also have a, this is coming from looking at, uh, I was going to ask you about this and this is the perfect time. Um, When I've interviewed Stephanie Seneff talking a lot about her views of, she's oftentimes talking about glyphosate and other neurotoxins and other issues, but she's also a huge fan of Epsom salt baths because of the assimilation of the magnesium and the other minerals dermally. And I find it also quite calming. And that's one of the reasons I like, I'm not particularly hyper, but I get tight structurally because I stand all day. I stand eight to 10 hours every day. It's a chef thing. I stand. And so when I soak in the evenings, I just can kind of feel it kind of go, oh, it's really soothing. So I, I take oral magnesium but I also often soak, and I find that is a really calming effect. Orally, does it have that same thing where it's a little, it's somehow soothing or muscle relaxing in the body? Absolutely, yeah. If um, you know parents understand the dosing and taking enough, but we also recommend the um, Epsom salt, be the baths or foot baths. Sometimes just you know it's a nice thing to do with your child. The parents and the child are putting their feet in uh, some Epsom salt while they talk. Um, so it's a great um, great tool um, for both communication and a uh, little extra magnesium. Uh-huh. And I'm going to kind of go down the chapters of the book. There will be a little jumping around, but I'll, I'll try to keep it somewhat in the book because I think it has such wonderful content. In Chapter 2, you talk about balancing the brain waves and using both supplements or foods, really is what I would call them, and as well as neurofeedback, could you talk about chapter two? Because I think that's a really great 
I want to do chapter two. (laughs) Well, I mean, neurofeedback um, is something that's been around for a long time. I was doing it in my office in 1995. And it's it's a technique where we're teaching kids how to change their brainwaves without being aware of it. So it's computer screens. um, And we know that uh, what the inattention brainwaves are, they call theta waves. And we know with paying attention brainwaves, those are beta waves. And we know that kids with ADD have high theta waves. They don't pay attention. So neurofeedback, um, when we started, it was very expensive. And it was um, many sessions, two or three times a week, come into the office. And many kids got better, and I became a huge fan. But many kids didn't, and they couldn't predict who would and who wouldn't. And then I started using what's called the OPCs, these grapeseed and pine bark and blueberries, these uh, what we call phytochemicals that we were able to demonstrate also decreased the daydreaming brain waves, the theta waves. So I've been using these, um, as you said, foods, these phytochemicals for many, many years. And, and I guess why it's the second chapter, because it's the second most important in my opinion that we can get some improved attention by using these uh, combinations of these phytochemicals uh, and um, you know uh, neurofeedback is still helpful um, but it's, it's a long process and you need to be motivated and actually insurance is helping cover some of it um, so now it's a little different than when I started but they both the goal is the same someone with ADHD oftentimes struggles with sustained attention and focus, and it gets in the way of many aspects of their life, school being the most traumatic, but also relationships and work. And if we can decrease those daydreaming brain waves, decreasing theta waves, they'll feel better, they'll focus better. We can do that with neurofeedback, and we can do that with these um, OPCs, these phytochemicals from grapes and green tea and blueberries. Ah, green tea and blueberries. They're food groups for me. Um, and have you done? Have you reviewed uh, any of the work at HeartMath Institute using heart rate variability? Sure, we're, we're, we actually use that at our hospital, and um, I'm familiar with with the work. I, I don't know about any direct um, ADHD um, work that was done with it, but for kind of uh, stress tolerance and relaxation and anxiety, um, we've seen very good results. I think of it because I, I think that I've done neurofeedback and I've done HRV and HRV, some aspects of the HRV, if you have the software where you look at the computer, it reminds me of neurofeedback in terms of it's helping you modulate, you know, like the classic is the balloon floating in the sky and then in some kind of neurofeedback, they help you. You learn to control the balloon so it floats and drifts and doesn't go off the screen and stuff. And they do some sort of similar things with HRV, and they have simple systems that you can use at home, even devices you can just clip to your finger or earlobe for using HRV just to control a tone. And I find it a really soothing, easily doable at any time because you just clip this thing to your ear and you sit and you be quiet and sort of go into a focused or a meditative state, I'll call it. Um, and it gives you immediate feedback, and it's quite soothing. I'm always looking for soothing. Right. More OPCs. <laughs> that could be Absolutely. a baseball cap. <laughs> right. 
Now it's been, you know, actually I was pretty skeptical. A parent came in and um, who had been seeing and, and found these supplements and put it on the kids and they were doing better. And then that's when we started, we had the neurofeedback machine and we started looking and documenting the improved brainwave patterns with kids with ADHD. That's great. And I'm going to jump to chapter five because it's about the gut. And I think just even in the four or five years that we've talked, wow, the gut, microbiome, the other brain. Wow. People are going, wow, the gut's really important. Yeah. (laughs) So talk to us about the gut and healing dysbiosis, please. Sure. Yeah. No, again, another reason that things are a little more fun for me now because the research in the scientific world is catching up with some of these concepts that people have been talking about for many years. But I, I think with ADHD, there's some, a couple of very powerful areas where gut, what we call dysbiosis, can affect behavior. The one we used to see when I, when I first started often was on candida overgrowth because when mm. I started, every child that walked into a pediatrician's office with a earache went out with a you know, mm. 10-day prescription of an antibiotic. So we saw a lot of, and many of these here, they weren't ear infections, they weren't bacterial, they were virus. And it was before pediatricians were much more cautious about uh, throwing out antibiotics indiscriminately. So we had a lot of um, yeast overgrowth. So antibiotics will kill the good bacteria and the bad, and then uh, overgrowth of yeast is not uncommon. I see that less now. I still see it. So if a child has had multiple um, series of antibiotics, as a child we look for yeast overgrowth, which can create some of the symptoms of ADHD. But there are also a few markers of bacterial overgrowth, Clostridia overgrowth, that we've been able to um, find that some of these markers, some of the chemicals that the bacteria produce actually affect behavior, affect dopamine and norepinephrine in the brain. We can detect these chemicals. And then by fixing the gut by either um, high-dose probiotics, once it normalizes, behavior normalizes doesn't mean every ADHD child has this, but when we detect it, it just kind of provides a really clear, personalized path of treatment for that individual. I can't remember if I heard, because I reviewed a lot of material as I was getting ready to interview you again, and I can't remember if I read it in the book or if I heard you say it, but I I guess I just hadn't been aware of the term high-dose probiotics. Like that was, my God, a radical idea, high-dose probiotics, not just probiotics, but like high-dose. Man, we're doing high-dose probiotics. I just think it's so exciting that people are, you know, and and you're in the field with doctors. You're a doctor. It's amazing. Probiotics? Wow. That is awesome. But the idea of high-dose probiotics is do you start – patients out with a higher dose so that they can build and then they just go to a sort of a maintenance dose? Is there a, is there an, is there a thing where you want to give a high dose? I'm not saying there's any problem with it. I'm just curious. Yeah. And so if we detect this marker, we can, it's a urine test and we detect this uh, chemical called HPHPA that's not naturally in the urine. It's produced by um, certain strains of clostridia. So if we see that, um, then, you know, going over the counter and taking a, a probiotic is unlikely to make a dent. 
But if we start uh, in increasing dosages to 200, 300 billion, what's called CFUs, sometimes we can kind of treat um, this uh, dysbiosis um, without any medication. There are some individuals, uh, more so adults who struggle with this, um, that we need to use an antibiotic. So an antibiotic to actually kill this form of uh, clostridia, this bacteria, to decrease this chemical. But with kids, we have pretty good success with the probiotic at dosages that are much higher than many people would find at the health food store. Wonderful. Wow. Is there is there a warning about taking too much probiotic? Uh, I don't think I mean, so. I think okay. I mean, some maybe some diarrhea, but there's really um, um, no. I mean, there are prescription probiotics now that are even higher for um, ulcerative colitis and other GI problems. So there's really no side effects that have ever been demonstrated. I was mostly being facetious. It's hard for me to imagine, like, really? Too? I took too much probiotics, man. It's bad. Yeah, your bowels get loose. Oh, my. Um, right. That's just, that's just me. Um, let's talk about Chapter 7, about strengthening the brain cells or weakening AD for, you know, affecting ADHD. I'm always a fan of strengthening brain cells, period. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in that chapter is where we discuss, you know, the importance of uh, omega-3 fatty acids. I think many people, if they just Google ADHD and nutrition, that would come up first. And, and really, it's in the middle of the book for us because it's, it's not a problem in every child. But for many kids, you know, every brain cell is enveloped by these uh, omega-3 fatty acids, what we get in fish, nuts, and seeds. And many of our kids are not eating fish, nuts, and seeds. And um, there's both good research, and again, we've been doing testing for 30 years, that a subset of these kids are just profoundly deficient. Um, and by providing omega-3 supplements, they're going to do better. And omega-3s by itself, it's not going to be that dramatic effect that you might get with magnesium or OPCs, but the, what, are their, what I call foundational, things just work better. Um, actually affects dysbiosis. It actually affects neurotransmitters. It affects so many other aspects of the gut and, and brain health that if uh, kids are deficient in omega-3s, things just don't work well. does, again, it really can do no harm because it's really just neutrifying the cells. Am I correct in that? It's yeah, a, absolutely. It's I mean, all, it's all upside. The, I guess is what I'm At talking all about. All upside. I mean, we could okay. go through every major medical, psychiatric, and even throw in Alzheimer's on, in longevity, you know, um, certainly depression, uh, but the uh, the amount of omega-3s in our diet affects our brain. Amazing. Growing better, stronger humans. It's a radical idea. <laughs> By eating um, human food, yes. <laughs> right. Wow. Um and I, that leads me into – I am jumping around in the book, but it just leads me in the direction of wanting to talk about Chapter 6, which are these foods may – these good foods may be bad for your child, uh, food sensitivities and food allergies and digestive enzymes. Wow, digestive enzymes. Um, so would you talk about Chapter 6? That seems really critical. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that um, too many of our, you know, new integrative doctors or naturopaths are just doing a food allergy test and telling parents to eliminate this food or that food. And in my experience, in the young children, children under 12, certainly the four or six-year-olds in particular, that eliminating foods that they show an allergy to can have profound benefits for behavior. The older kids and adults, it's not as dramatic. It's usually a piece of the puzzle. So I really caution parents from just eliminating uh, foods. Um, It's going to make a huge dent without looking at all the other aspects or things that we talked about in the book. But, you know, I've seen four- and five-year-olds kicked out of preschool, and, you know, we find there are many different kinds of allergies to dairy, and they stop dairy, and this behavior improves. For some, it can be that simple. For others, you know, it's other aspects that need to get addressed. The, um, The digestive enzymes, in particular, I talked about a subset of kids, again, usually the younger kids, that don't break down gluten and dairy completely. So it's not an allergy and it's not celiac disease. It's uh, enzyme deficiency that doesn't break it down completely, and we can give the missing enzyme, and it's also a zinc-dependent enzyme, so we give the trace mineral zinc, and that can help many kids as well. And once again... Digestive enzymes are doing nothing but good. I should reword that, but I didn't. <laughs> they're all about, they're, again, they're all upside. Is that? Yeah, absolutely. I, Particularly for kids who, again, have been eating a very poor diet and uh, their digestive system is not used to digesting, you know, healthy food. And um, due to some of these mineral deficiencies, they can't make some of these uh, enzymes in the amounts they need. Right. And do you, in, in the testing that you do, do you look at people's uh, HCL levels, hydrochloric acid levels in the digestive system? Uh, I used to many, many years ago. At this point, um, I don't for kids. Um, but for adults, I have found if I look at the levels of fasting amino acids, so mm. that'll help us understand if they're digesting protein, so they're eating adequate protein in the diet. And I do this amino acid test, and it shows that they're very deficient, which means they're not breaking down and absorbing. And that would be kind of my diagnostic clue to aid uh, with hydrochloric acid and uh, digestive enzymes. Okay. I'm a fan of HCL ever since I interviewed Jonathan Wright in the 90s. He wrote the book, uh, Stomach Acid is Good for You. And he's always been a thought leader in nutrition and food. And many times I'm out to dinner with people who get bloaty after dinner and at the meal, I'll hand them an HCL and they'll call me the next day and go, what was that? (laughs) Because it's such a miracle effect of, wow, I wasn't bloated like a cow on a hot summer day. I can't believe it. What was that? And I feel the same way about digestive enzymes. I'm a big fan of both of those. Yeah, I know. I think I, I start off most of my lectures on depression um, with just that story in a cover of his book, Why Hydrochloric Acid is Good for You. So not as critical for the younger kids, um, right. but for adults, absolutely. A big part of the work that we do for mental health is digestion and absorption. Digestion. Wow. 
It's amazing. You you are a rabble rouser. You're very subtle about it, but you are a rabble rouser. I don't know if <laughs> you're a competitive kickboxer or something in the side, but you know, in terms of your, it, I was really excited when I saw this book because this this seems like to me almost a guidebook for people to raise healthy humans. I mean, the ADHD is a particular focus, but the overall guides of, hey, eat a good diet, try some digestive enzymes, have some testing done. That kind of thing is like growing healthy humans. I'd rebrand it. Just a thought. <laughs> it's it's you know, amazing. The rates, of, the rates of ADHD and other psychiatric illnesses are just you know skyrocketing and autism and we could go on and on, but certainly... Some of these concepts are simple and can really make a dent in, in mental health for our children. So that's why it was important to get the book out. Yeah. And which leads me to our old friend. Well, that's in such sarcastic air quotes. Uh, chapter eight, solve the sugar problem. Just add protein. Please talk to us about the sugar and then the protein fix. Yeah, actually, when I, when I started um, in the 90s giving talks on ADHD, you know, I would always use the example of the child in my office, you know, true story, who's sitting there quietly, parents gave him, um, I, uh, what was it called, Hawaiian punch, oh. and um, watched them bounce off the walls in the waiting room, couldn't sit in the office. So most parents and, and most uh, adults knew that sugar kind of wound up some kids, not all kids, but we didn't have the research. The one study in the 90s from a pediatric group said sugar doesn't cause hyperactivity, so that was the mantra from pediatricians. But over the past 30 years now, we do have research, absolutely, that shows that high consumption of sugar-sweetened beverages increase rates of ADHD. High consumption of sugary drinks, whether it's juice or, or candy, increases ADHD. So we now know that sugar is um, important for behavior and cutting out. Oh, there was also then the number of sugar-sweetened drinks. Uh, if you had three Cokes a day versus eight Cokes a day, mm. uh, different rates. So certainly we can tell every parent to cut sugar, and most parents know it, but I think it is unrealistic to think that um, a child's not going to have some sugar. So we tried to focus on the, that chapter, helping parents understand that, yes, refined sugar is not healthy and limiting it is important. But if you started adding protein in the diet, then less time for junk food and um, some research shows better behavior. And do you educate your patients to the idea that refined carbohydrates kind of act like sugar in the body in terms of its assimilation. If it assimilates rapidly, a high glycemic index, it can really be very sugar-like. Is that true? Uh, absolutely. Yeah, particularly, okay. you know, between the fruit juices and the, um, you know, uh, the refined grains and, the, and the, all the junk food that these kids are eating um, have uh, pretty significant effects on one, depleting other nutrients. You need the B vitamins to, you know, metabolize this carbohydrate, this refined sugar. And so um, it's not part of the, the diet if you're just eating uh, refined foods. So it, it's a, I call it a nutritional vacuum cleaner, and then it has its own effect on blood sugar and behavior. 
Yeah. I, I say that partially because also I want to back up for just a moment and talk about I have a mom who for a long time was doing her, you know, feeding her kids well, but would oftentimes give them like a big bunch of grapes to eat. Just grapes, which are wonderful, good nutrition, many phyto benefits, but it's really kind of nature's packaged sugar. They're high in sugar. And she would feed the kids lots of grapes because it was a good food. It's a healthy, organic, all those good words, but it's still sugar in terms of its assimilation and it needs to be kind of packaged out. It's kind of like, I've always thought of grapes as kind of like nature's M&Ms. Not quite so mean, but I mean, they really are. Their grapes are wonderful, but wow, can you get strung out on grapes? Is that just me or is that really a thing? I, I think that um, I think my you know as a child psychiatrist um, trying to juggle you know a parent yelling at me or a child yelling at me <laughs> I think I, I kind of draw the line with you know the juices the grape juices so any yeah. of the juices I think it's pretty pretty sad I try to explain to them how many apples it took to get you know into that small little juice right um, so but absolutely the juices the grape the apples can be um, really destructive for these kids. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't thought about that. You get to flip a to- – it's a coin toss between the parent yelling at you or the child. That's a tricky one. It's not an easy job. Um, right. And, and let's talk about – or would you please talk with us about alternatives to ADHD drugs and neurotrans- neurotransmitter precursors? Yeah, I mean, I think that um... – you know, the, the stimulant medications, the Ritalin, the Vyvanse, the Dexedrine, the Adderall, these are medicines that have been used for many, many years. Um, and, and they actually have been shown to be helpful with the symptoms. They don't get at the underlying cause. And it's kind of a Band-Aid, but if you're bleeding, you need a Band-Aid. So we know these medicines work. Um, they help someone pay attention. And we also know that how they work. They increase dopamine, increase norepinephrine. So... In, in this chapter, we talk about other means of increasing this neurotransmitter in the brain, dopamine, norepinephrine, by using the amino acid precursors, uh, tyrosine and phenylalanine, and the, and the nutritional cofactors. And, and there's pretty good research that we can support dopamine just in the same way that these drugs do by, uh, in a more natural way. And do they start out at low dose and kind of build till they're comfortable, or is that something? Is there is there a way to monitor those levels, or is it kind of trial and error in terms of adding tyrosine or other precursors? Yeah, no, I mean it's trial and error. I kind of call it a nutraceutical, you know, versus pharmaceutical. So we do start off low and titrate up. Um, again, that's a later chapter in the book because we want to make sure we add the magnesium and we look for deficiencies and fill all those holes, and then if a parent wants to um, not go in the medication direction, then we would look at uh, these nutraceuticals and and use these amino acid precursors like tyrosine um, to see if we can support attention. Yeah, supporting attention. That would be good. (laughs) That would be great. Um, How do we – you move into – in chapter 10, you talk about the finely focused lifestyle, deep sleep and regular exercise 
sleep. I, I still have issues with sleep, but I have always had issues with sleep. That's sort of me as a lifestyle, sleep. But talk about the benefits of resolving sleep issues and or disorders plus exercise. These are really simple um, you know, lifestyle changes that make a huge difference in, in many psychiatric disorders, but ADHD in particular. There's, there's not a parent of an ADHD child um, who would probably say their kid does not have a, a problem sleeping. It's either not being able to fall asleep or getting up too early. And it, it's really very common in ADHD. And, and some of the interventions we talk about throughout the book, magnesium in particular, the first chapter, magnesium will help these kids sleep better. Again, usually magnesium deficient and magnesium helps sleep. But my approach is to do whatever it takes. It could just be magnesium. It might be other nutrients. Sometimes it's melatonin. Sometimes it's medications. But if I can't get these kids sleeping regularly, it exacerbates all the symptoms of ADHD, and it's a, it's a real problem. You know, the flip side is movement and exercise um, has profound benefits, again, supported by the research in helping kids um, with the symptoms of ADHD. And you talk about mindfulness. Would you say a little bit more about mindfulness about, in terms of, well, just everything, mindfulness? Um, can, you, can, yeah, you take I mean, an ADH, can you take an ADHD child and get them into meandering in forests? I, I just have that yeah. as an image. Yeah, no, I, I think... Um, you know, for years we've been writing about it for anxiety and depression, and we have research to support it. So that's why in this book there's a fun chapter because you certainly do not think of an ADHD child sitting cross-legged meditating because they're not going to be able to sit or pay attention. Um, but mindfulness is not necessarily um, meditation. It's very different. And in the book we talked about some, you know, walking mindfulness exercise, you know, whether it's walking in nature, because there's also good research that being in nature helps um, kids pay attention. But yes, if we can use mindfulness um, by design as just helping kids be more aware uh, of themselves and the present, um, that that has effects in the brain um, that improves attention. Some of the um, martial arts um, programs where there's not a lot of movement, it's slow, subtle movements, have also been shown to be very helpful for attention, and these kids um, can really benefit from it, I do think, because it's um, a mindful approach to movement where awareness is the key, and it does affect the brain. Well, oftentimes, let's say Tai Chi, which is the classic one you see groups of people in the park doing very slow motion Tai Chi, and part of that is also focusing on the breath, and and I don't mean in the way of there's a trend now with a lot of deep breathing and nostril breathing and all sorts of breathing techniques. That's kind of different. I just mean focusing on the breath can be calming. And part of doing Tai Chi is you're really getting your center and breathing and slow motion all kind of at the same time. And you've fooled them into doing an exercise that's causing those, you know, allowing them to slow down. That seems, once again, nothing but upside. Absolutely. And, and I think parents would be surprised at some of these um, 
you know, both the martial arts where it's much more common, but the Tai Chi where the kids actually participate, they do well, and they can um, sustain their attention uh, to the teacher. And so many parents are surprised. Well, and are there times when uh, kids would do Tai Chi or something like that, and they come away feeling is there, is there, do you observe conflict with some of the kids where they actually like being, feeling calm versus in an agitated state for whatever the reason, whether it's dietary, is they, is they go through this process of cleaning up their diet and their lifestyle or cleaning up their parents' diet lifestyle, depending upon how you look at that. Um, do they recognize and enjoy that kind of process once they've gotten to a health state to be able to enjoy it? Does that make sense? Um, oftentimes, yes. I think one important point about ADHD, it's different than many of the other psychiatric disorders because it's not a, it's not a feeling problem. You don't feel ADHD. I mean, you feel anxious or sad. So a lot of times the kids with ADHD don't necessarily think there's anything wrong. It's just when they get criticized or reflect on their behavior or the teacher tells them to sit down or they're not doing well. So they don't always know, feel different but they certainly can appreciate the fact that they've been able to accomplish something, follow through with something. And that cycle just improves self-esteem, motivation, and it really prevents this, um, you know, long-term assault on um, just feeling down and and low self-esteem, which affects the rest of their lives. Well, it seems like building um, confidence would be beneficial, and that's one of the things I think that Tai Chi is really beneficial for, not just building confidence, but it's it's a focused, relaxing kind of exercise that you come away feeling more centered, which there are all sorts of Absolutely. words and languaging about that, but you feel more in your body, I guess is really what I'm trying to say, which never seems to be a bad thing to be. And I think sometimes if you're if you're slightly hyper, again, back into the kitchen scene for me, if you could introduce, if yeah. I could introduce some of those people to the idea of a mindfulness act or going for just a walk on a beach for filling a bunch of bad words sake, um, that it would help them calm and become more in their body because you can get to such an agitated state that you kind of get out of control. I don't mean aggressively, but you just, I, I've watched it happen where they just get agitated, more agitated, just the agitation cascades, and they lose control in a certain way, even if it's only in their mind. So the idea of having something where you can go and do a little Tai Chi and come away feeling calm and confident, wow, seems all good. Absolutely. And what's interesting for many kids, um, you can expose them to new things like mindfulness or hikes or uh, Tai Chi, but there are also kids that place in, in other things. The most amazing to me was a very hyperactive child who could fish. He could sit there and fish for all day long with his father and not move and get in that meditative state by fishing, but he couldn't sit in the school for more than five minutes. So there are many things that we ask the kids, or play chess. They can sit and play chess for six hours but can't sit for 15 minutes in school. So we really look for the strength that these kids do find that is both centering and helps them be aware of their kind of body and uh, their, their thoughts. And that's where they'll excel. Mm-hmm. And we're kind of coming around the bend here. So I, I want to get to the part where you talk about 
this is toward the latter part of the book. You talk about in chapter 12, the ADHD medication minus the side effects. How, what is that? And how is that, is, how is that possible? Well, I've doing this for so many years. I think it, it, uh, I would not, I don't think any child should be taking these medications for ADHD that has side effects. Now there are about 10, 15 medicines, many new ones came out. And oftentimes the side effects that people see, um, irritability, agitation, nail biting, ticks, those are usually due to magnesium deficiency. So, so in that chapter, I tried to help parents understand that, you know, using medicine doesn't mean you failed or your child's failed. It can be life-saving in terms of their development and can be helpful short-term. And, but two, using magnesium as a medication can uh, minimize, if not prevent, side effects. And three, if there are medication side effects, then it's the wrong medicine. So, Again, there are many, many different choices, and you should not kind of tolerate um, the kid can't sleep or the kid has a tick. Um, so you need to find somebody who can help support you in looking for the right medicine without side effects. And are there times when a child or an adult may need to be on it, comes in and needs a medication because they have a situation that's just really flaming out of control? Then, as they go through the process or the steps even in this book, either working with you or in this book, where they go through the nutrition, they clean up their gut, they get into some mindfulness, they have a better diet, uh, they stop drinking box sodas, they, you know, all, all those kinds of things, they do this process, that they are able to, have you observed people who've been able to either dial back their medication as they go through all of this? becoming healthier or less exposed oh, or whatever all the words are. Yeah. And they've not only been able to taper, but actually go off of their medication. Yeah. Yeah. All the time. I mean, I think, you know, that this approach is takes time and patience and too often parents um, come in when things have fallen apart and sometimes medicine is needed initially because to do the testing and the supplements, you know, we have an expression that takes three months to change your oil to get the good fats in. So during that three to six months of uh, addressing things more holistically, nutritionally, uh, medicine sometimes could be helpful, and then medicines can be stopped, absolutely. That's very exciting. That's the perfect close. I can't believe that all came together for the perfect close of the show. Because that's really what I what I felt. As I say, I really feel like this is a coffee table book for every family in America to like. Let's just do this because we want to be healthier. Let's. What about that? What a radical idea! Um, it's it's a great book. It should be uh, everywhere. It's an amazing culmination of your decades of dedication to slowly sliding the idea into Western medicine of like, could we look at diet? Supplementation? What do you think, everybody? Let's do let's do that. It's really wonderful. Thank you, Doctor. A great conversation as always. It was very enjoyable. Thank you. My, and my pleasure. Audience, great to be back. Thank you. And and the audience is a lot of comments going on in the chat room with people talking about, wow, that's you know this and that and the thing. And so it's it's as when we originally communicated about the idea of this, it is so timely. It amazes me how ADHD is just 
it's almost on a daily basis I hear somebody talking about something about it. It just amazes me that it's become such a thing. Uh, it's, you know, what a great book for it. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, everybody, have a great rest of the weekend, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.